Romans uh, starts out with this interesting uh, take that these people don't know they need Jesus. And today, you know, most of us probably don't know that we need Jesus. It's an easy thing to fall into. And so Paul begins this book, and we've talked our way through that, uh, with, with the idea that we don't always know what Jesus offers us, and we don't know what we need that Jesus offers us. But that's the first couple chapters of Romans. Then he gets into exactly what Jesus offers. He lays out for us this set of truths basically summarized by one thing. God has offered you salvation. He has offered you the fact that you don't have it within you, I don't have it within me, no human being has had it within themselves to live up to God's call in our lives. And because of that, we've had this huge amount of failure and we've needed Jesus to take our place. And so that's Romans up through chapter 5. But this morning... Well, let's just hypothetically say you already have a relationship with Jesus. And that's what this passage takes off on, is that thought that you already have developed a relationship with Christ. But now, what's next? What's next? And frankly, it doesn't mean that you're a perfect person if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. A lot of people who have a relationship with Christ are not necessarily people who are perfect. Wouldn't you agree with me? Would you agree with me that I'm not a perfect person? Those of you who know me well. I'm not looking in Shelby's direction, but those of you to my right, you're good enough. I catch on. I'm humbled. Okay. So we admit that Josh isn't perfect. We admit that you're not perfect, that the kids outside this room are not perfect. Even the babies in the nursery are not perfect. The world's had kind of a cataclysm take place, and it's not a good thing. Okay, so Romans 6 takes place in this context. It's a bunch of, it's a question about what happens. It starts out with a question. If we are going to be people who have been offered this free gift of salvation, well, what does that mean? And, and I'm going to begin reading with Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If you've got a free gift and it's a free pass to Walmart or Target, don't you just keep using that card over and over and over and over again? Why wouldn't you blow it? I mean, honestly, I don't know what you think of when I say the word sin, but I'll just say it's anything that would hurt the heart of God, okay? We'll just say it that way. Now, besides that, do you, would you say that the things you've heard of in your life that hurt God's heart, the things that are on the other side of the line, are those things fun? Okay, one honest person. I don't know how many people who are here. But, uh, did you get a count? No? You don't know how many people. 84, okay, 84 people and Eric's the only honest person. Is sin fun? Honestly, it is a lot of fun. I mean, sometimes, at least at the beginning stages, the things that hurt God's heart are hugely things that make our hearts smile. I'd argue they don't end that way, but when this question is asked of this ancient guy, Paul, it's a really good question. Wouldn't you agree? Why shouldn't we just blow it more and more and more? If God's going to forgive everything we do, why not keep going? And then he says this, By no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ's death were baptized, who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Jesus. The death he died... 
Jesus died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. When I was a kid, I first really enjoyed having a relationship with my parents. There was this kind of sense of, of just, you know, connection. You know what I'm saying? And even today, I notice with my kids, when they're little babies, you know, you, you, they, they cry when you put them down, you know? And they want to be held. And more often by mom than dad, but one or two of my kids have enjoyed their dad as well, you know? And, and so we have this relationship, and it's a huge connection. And by about the time they reach a year or 18 months, they start to walk. They take a first step. And I've thought now that that first step really is the first step away from us as a parent. Wouldn't you agree? Today, I, when I come to school, my, uh, my, my pre-K kid, Maggie, she just loves to see me. She runs down the steps. and it, You know, I've caught Sophie like doing this, just kind of like that. And she's only in kindergarten. It's going to get worse, right? She acts like we're not connected, like the DNA is not the same. And yet she shares my last name, and we do share a gene pool, at least half of her, you know? Why is that? When I was in college, I remember uh, I so wanted to avoid my dad. I mean, my dad is the sort of embarrassing person. Some of you have met him. He's just incredibly embarrassing. He would come to Chicago. Our school was right in the middle of downtown Chicago. And I'll never forget this girl. Like, after my dad had been there for a week and he had gone home. This girl comes up to me in the cafeteria at my college and I did not know her. I, did, I had seen her around, but I didn't know her. And she said, <clears throat> you know, this guy on the street in Chicago asked me if I would date his son. Is your name by chance Josh? And I wanted to say, no, it's Bob, you know? Um, and I just wished my dad would never come visit me again. And we looked so much alike that this thing would happen where he would come to our college and he would come to the college and and he'd be downstairs in my dorm or wherever and people who I didn't even know would come upstairs to my room and they'd knock on the door and they'd say, you know what, we think your dad's downstairs. And that's how much we looked like. I I so wanted to act like my daughter where we're just distant. Like, please, stay over there and I'll stay over here. This is my world in downtown Chicago. You live in West Michigan. Just stay there. You know, that that theme has continued and today I live in eastern Pennsylvania. And uh, he lives in West Michigan, and it's just great, you know? We have three states between us. We don't like to look like our parents. We don't like to be connected too much with our parents. I have a great relationship with my dad, and half of that's funny, but half of it is honest. It's really true. He embarrasses me. You never know what he's going to say next, and I'm 34, and I still think he embarrasses me. When Paul writes this passage, behind it, what he's trying to get us to do is to connect ourselves to Christ. He is afraid that you have the same feeling about God that I have with my dad. We want a little bit of God, but we don't want to connect ourselves all the way. We don't really want to identify with this God. We don't really want to identify with his son who died for us. And so we don't understand the profound nature of what's happened in our lives. I'm going to use the whiteboard, of course, this morning, and it says that we have died. And so the first level I want you to look at is the fact that I honestly think this passage tells us we have a new identity. Something has changed inside your life if you have a relationship with Christ. And frankly, it's probably changed more than even you know. I believe it's changed more than I know. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, and I'll turn there and read it for you. You don't have to necessarily turn there with me. But in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. 
Behold, new things have come. How many of you wish that you were there at the, di- the first few days of creation when God started to sp- speak the universe into existence? There's so much question about that passage. I would love to just see how God did it, specifically. End all of this scientific debate and you know the intelligent design versus evolution stuff. Just see beyond all that. How did God actually make this place? And if it's anything like what the book of Genesis says, and I believe it is, then it was an amazing moment, wouldn't you think? Seeing God do something as magisterial as create something is amazing. But this passage asks us to believe that when God helps us to become people who are devoted to Christ, who are people who are connected to Christ, he actually begins this new creation process all over again. In John chapter 3, there's this conversation between a religious leader and Jesus, and the religious leader is kind of filled with all these questions. It's just a mess, and he asks all these questions about the faith, and Jesus says, listen, you need to be born again. And Jesus says, I just can't imagine or Nicodemus, the religious leader, says, I can't imagine what that might mean. And yet Jesus says, listen, you need, to be start, you need to start completely over. And God can do this in your life. He can begin the process again. He can create you. He can recreate you. And you will be a new creation in him if you give him the ability to do that. And so the, the Bible describes, if you will, these two roads. Okay? In 1920, this guy named Robert Frost penned a poem and you've probably heard it. Two roads diverged in a wood, and he takes the one less traveled. I took the one. I took the one less traveled on, and it made all the difference. Have you heard that poem before in your life? The, I, I asked the first service. I said Robert Frost, and nobody said, there, said anything. And Well, three or four people. And then I quoted the poem, and then they're like, oh, yeah, that's it. And, and really, our, all of us are facing two roads And what this passage tells us is that if we're in Christ, if we're having a relationship with him, we've decided on this path. There's another path. In fact, it says there's a path of life and there's a path of death. And the Bible does this all throughout the scriptures. Over and over again, it describes these two roads. And it says that every moment is a road where you're choosing to be on one or the other of these two paths. Okay? So you get that kind of beginning to the whole story. Should we sin? No. Why? Because we are so connected with Christ that when he died on the cross, part of us died with him. And there's a part of us that is only alive if we have died to the stuff that previously held us bondage. We, have, we need Jesus and we need that power that he has over sin because we've walked inside this other path all throughout our lives. And he says, so why should you not sin anymore? It's because your identity has changed. Let's just say that on Tuesday I didn't come into work. Okay? Now you you know that I work for you, right? I mean, mostly I work for God, but I also work for the people of Parker Ford Church. I'm a pastor in this church. What if I just decided this week I'm going to be an electrician? I I hang out a shingle and put something in the mercury. I mean, A, I don't know much about electricity, but let's pretend that I do. And I just went to be an electrician. How would you feel about that? What, what, what about the week after that if I was a plumber? And the week after that if I was a truck driver? And the week after that I decided I was going to be a psychologist without any of the credentials. That would be really fun. What if we did that? What if we changed identities all of our lives? Each minute kind of being an altered form of who we used to be. Saying today we're going to be this. The next day we're going to be that. You know, honestly, that's what we look like if we're honest. Do, I, do we identify with Christ mostly or do we identify with our jobs? 
Do we identify ourselves with Christ mostly or do we identify ourselves with our last names? Do we identify ourselves with Christ mostly or do we identify ourselves with the church we attend? You know, Parker Ford Church is not Jesus. It's not the same thing at all. We can get false identities in our life. And once we go down that road of false identity, we just keep changing over and over again. We become affected. We become people who have masks over our faces. And that's exactly what Paul describes next. Let me read for you verse 12. It says that, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. What does it mean to reign? Notice the R-E-I-G. Is that right? I'm spelling it correctly, right? R-E-I-G-N, not R-A-I-N. Not the stuff like what we need for our plants today. What, do, what does it mean that God reigns or that something reigns in our lives? Wow, that was pretty good. You guys all were, I didn't hear any one of you individually. Somebody said rules, okay. Weeds? Oh, he leads, okay. Weeds, I, wow. To be in charge, okay. Something is going to reign over us. Something is going to have control. The word most often translated worship in the Old Testament means to bow down or to serve. There's two different versions of that. Bow down or to serve. Let me read for you a quote. This is from Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, kind of a historic person in our country's past. A person, a person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. A person will serve something is what he's saying. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Let me draw that on a line for you and just tell you what it looks like. It means that if you start on this path, it's going to increase. And if you start on this path, it's going to increase. And it's whichever path you're on, you are serving something. And when you are serving that something, you are becoming like it in some powerful way. You are either headed on the downward slant or you are headed on the upward slant. And if you are headed on the upward, it is changing your life forever. If you're heading on the downward, it's also changing your life forever. Paul goes on to write, or read, I'll read, he'll write. How's that? Romans 12 and I'll look. 6 verse 13 now do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace by no means don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as a slave, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Let me break this down for you for a quick minute. When you walk by a sign that says wet paint, what do you want to do? When you drive by a sign that says 55, what do you want to do? Better yet, when you are uh, going down the right side of the turnpike and somebody comes alongside you and is going five miles an hour faster than you, what do you want to do? You want to speed up. People do it all the time. And then they yell at other people who do it. You know, That's how we are. We have this psych psychological malady in us that when it says don't do it, we want to do it, right? 
Our house has an alley behind it. And the biggest rule possibly in our whole home is don't go out the back fence. Because people travel that alley at 25, 30 miles an hour, breaking their shocks, going over potholes. It's amazing how people go down that alley. And they're not our neighbors. We don't know who they are. We don't know why they go down the alley, but they go down the alley. And you will see periodically, I'll stand in our upstairs and I'll look out the window and I'll see my kids and they'll be lined up like they're in jail, looking out the back fence. You know, the fence is like right here to them. And they look below the, the bar and they, what are they looking at? The alley, you know? Why? Because we're either slaves to one thing or the other. They're not really slaves to the right stuff in their heart. They really want to do the wrong thing. And they don't understand the danger back there. They just know that I said no. And so it's the most enticing thing. The other day I put the kids in the van and I had to go back in and help Shelby with something. And somehow Noah escaped. And he got out of the van and he went and he, 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 the girls knew better. You know, they stayed in the van. But the, Noah, the boy, he goes out back and he, he's behind the van and he, he plants himself on that broken macadam looking both directions and just kind of is like, oh, Eden, here I have arrived. I am just like in the alley, you know, and just looking around. And there's nothing about that alley that would entice anybody other than someone who had been told not to go there, Right? I go back there, I say, no, what are you doing? Nothing, nothing. That's how we are. That's me. That's my heart. That's you. That's your heart. I heard a great description of the Ten Commandments recently. The Ten Commandments are like a fence. Kids are playing in the backyard, and the parents bought a a house next to a cliff, and they put up a fence to keep their kids from that cliff. And yet the fence is just a little too far towards the house and too far away from the cliff to see the cliff. And so the parents say, don't go across that fence. Don't go across that fence. And the kids look through it, always, just like my kids in the alley. And the Ten Commandments is the fence. The the guidelines that God gives us, they're the fence that keeps us from failing miserably. You know, the interesting thing is, I think he's doing more than keeping us from failing. He's keeping us from being addicted to the same things that increase the failure over and over and over again. You know, once we do something wrong, we love to continue to do it. In fact, it says that once you do something in that direction, you want to keep doing it. And habits are things that just keep us moving in the same trajectory of what we're going. And the Bible has a word for that, and it's a tough word. You know, sometimes when I'm a pastor and I'm working through this and I'm not an electrician, a plumber, a psychologist, I wish I were those things. And the reason why is because when you read the words of the Bible, they're tough words. And this first section is about identity. And, it, and right off the get-go, you hear about this way that leads to life. And then you hear at the end of this passage, it's going to say the other way leads to death. But in the middle of this thing is this other thing. And it says that there is a choice about slavery. You will choose to be a slave, it says. You don't have any option. You will be a slave to one thing or another throughout your entire life. Shelby and I have friends, we have dear friends, and you hear us talk about them often. They're probably because they're our closest friends, and uh, they they were heroin addicts. And they described what it was like to be a heroin addict. Our friend Sherry, she told me once, she said, a heroin addict is somebody who, when they steal your purse, will help you go look for it. They'll act like it's just plain missing. And, And she said, we're the nicest people on the planet, but we're serving one thing. Nothing else in this world matters but that one thing. My friend was in charge of our church's finance a few years ago in Michigan, the the last church that I served in, and he was in charge of the finances, and he got put in this position in this big annual meeting, and he says, well, isn't this interesting? 
I said, what do you mean, Bill? He says, well, you know, there was this church in Lancaster I used to attend, and I actually used to take money from the offering plate. And now I'm in charge of the money in our church. Do you really trust me, Josh? And I thought about this. That's a little interesting, isn't it? Do I trust them? Huh, you know? The fact is that they decided to stop being slaves to the thing that had enslaved us. And you know, frankly, addictions aren't always the things we think of. They're not always alcohol or substances. Sometimes addictions are just plain the way we talk. Sometimes addictions are the way we pattern our lives. And that second, that second whole tier, what I would describe is the, is the word patterns. Your life has patterns in it. And they're incumbent or dependent on your decisions. And you decide either you're going to walk a certain way or another and according to those patterns, when you get asked the tough question whether you tell the truth or not, whether you cheat slightly on your income tax, whether you alter the story slightly to make your boss think you look better or not, those things are defining moments. And they're deciding whether you're going to be a slave to God or whether you're going to be a slave to everything else in your life. And Paul says, listen, you have died to sin and your identity is with God. And so if you're really going to connect with your father and you're going to understand how much he loves you, you're going to have to walk in that identity. But you have the choice every day of your life to walk apart from it as well. You know, those two roads in the woods that are diverging, you know, most of us, I think, really, for honest, we don't quite take either path. We walk down the middle in the thorns and the thicket. We kind of want to be good people, and we aim for the good, but we end up a little bit the other direction, and we go back and forth between God and other stuff all the time. If we're honest, that's what life is really like, isn't it? We are slaves to God, and yet maybe we choose to be slaves to other things over and over and over again. And so this passage tells us that we all fit on this set of arrows, this set of lines. There are two roads, and we have this ability to be enslaved, and we are called upon to be enslaved. We are going to be people who worship something in our life, and either it's going to be God or it's going to be everything else. And frankly, we're either going to be addicted to one or the other of those two things. It's a little bit of a scary line, isn't it? Again, when I saw the word slavery this morning, our country has a horrible history with this word, and the world even more has a horrible history. Slavery hurts. Slavery damages. It limits. It takes away people's freedoms. And yet what the Bible tells us is that sin hurts. Sin limits freedom. Sin damages. Whatever hurts the heart of God hurts the heart of man as well. We just don't seem to know that very often. I'll, I'll close this section with just one thought. I'll tell you the most broken-hearted moments for Tim and I when we sit and talk about this section of lives where people are making this decision, when people are deciding whether or not to be enslaved to God. You see people who are going down the wrong road and they come to a place where the stuff in their life has just started to eat them. You know, maybe they really are addicted to some you know, failure deal in their life and their wife all of a sudden says, I've had enough. Your selfishness is too much. I'm not going to walk with you through life anymore. And immediately that guy goes, I need help. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes they come to church. Other times they go see counselors, psychologists, other religions. They go looking for God in any direction. But we all in that moment, when we have a big problem, we go looking for God in some direction. And sometimes it's the Christian God. Sometimes it's the right God. And sometimes those people end up in our office and we talk with them and we meet with them and we go through months of discipleship. We partner with them with community groups and we connect with them and they have accountable people. And then one Sunday, they're missing. 
And then that Bible study they were attending midweek, no more. And then they had an appointment on our calendar and we show up and nobody's at the office to meet us. And we realized that that white flag which they raised, they were in fear of their trouble, but they were not yet in love with God. It's the most painful moment in our lives. When we realize that somebody who is all of a sudden walking with God says, you know what, this is a little bit too tough. I'm still addicted to this other stuff. I don't really want to cut ties all the way. I don't really want to walk the way God called me to. I don't really like all this truth that you're, that you're preaching to me. It's not fun. The, the story of the gospel is the story of the end of the road. In most days, what the Bible describes is this giant thing called hope. If you read the last, the last set of Bible studies, you, you connected with that word called hope. And it says that there is huge amounts of hope for those of us who want to follow Christ. But the fact is, there's a way to leave that hope far behind as well. And so we go towards that hope. We walk towards that hope and we preach that hope. But when you're about right here in your life, you don't always feel like it's hopeful. It feels like it's rough. It feels like it's discipline. It feels like it's work. It feels like it's just plain effort. And we get tired and we wonder about that. This is what our lives are about. And the honesty is that we walk back and forth between those two enslavements, deciding that we want to be enslaved to this and then sometimes that. We want to listen to our own leadership, and then some days we want to listen to God. And we go back and forth, back and forth. Let me read the end of the passage. Romans 6.19, it says, I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. That means he's using words like death and slavery. They're pictures. They're word pictures for us. They're not so much literal. They are pictures of what we, what, what we need because we don't understand it without those pictures. Just as you used to offer the, body, the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Literally what this says is that the goal of each one of these two roads is vastly different. Life, death. God, isolation. Hope, hopeless. And we can walk down a list. You know, my favorite song, my favorite band is U2. I don't know if you are familiar with U2, but they've been around a while, about as long as I have. And my favorite song is called Bad. And it's the story of a person who cares for a heroin addict. Just not dissimilar to my friends. And there's this middle portion of the song that goes into this, this whole like chorus that says, isolation desolation, and all of these words that describe what it means to walk apart from God, hurt, damaged, living alone, being separated from the people you care about, giving in to the desires and the lusts and the passions of our lives. You know, nobody can convince us that what we actually feel when we're at this point in our lives might actually be lust instead of love. You know at this point though, right? Down here, when you walk down the road a long while and you're sitting next to an 85-year-old person as a pastor and you see that they have cancer and yet their husband is still there caring for them. 
You know, I, I, I visited a woman periodically who used to attend our church. She can't attend anymore because her husband is blind, is, has lost his ability to see enough to drive. And she has Alzheimer's. And every day that man catches a bus to go to the care facility where she lives, and he feeds her lunch. And he makes sure that she's getting the nourishment that she needs. And she has literally forgotten his name. And it's been going on now for months and years. You know, when, it, when you're down here talking about slavery, the things that kind of make our heart go pitter-patter, they look a lot alike. It's hard to tell the difference between God and the next thing. It's hard to tell the difference between what God has called us to and stuff that you see all around you. But when you're looking down the road to the end of life and you're looking at two people who have walked faithfully with each other for decade after decade after decade to the point where one of them has forgotten the other one and that, yet that person is still caring for them, the difference is huge, right? You can see the difference between life and death. Wouldn't you agree with me? This passage describes our lives, it describes every life, and it says we can either walk with Jesus Christ towards this great hope, towards this future, or we can walk separately. And the goals are fascinatingly different, but today they don't look that different. Today in your life, they look like minimal changes. They look like just kind of a little more commitment to honesty. They look like a little more sense of spiritual connectedness as you spend time with Jesus. They look a little more like you just need to quit that one thing in your life that keeps battling with you, that simple addiction. Maybe it's not even anything else anyone else would think of as addiction. Whatever it is, it's deciding who you are worshiping. In the words of Emerson, it's deciding who you're enslaved to. And deep at the very beginning, the real question is, where's your identity? When you look at yourself, do you see what God sees? He sees his son if you're a person who's committed to Jesus Christ. If you're a person who has a relationship with Jesus, he looks at you and says, I know that, that person's DNA. I have called them. I love them. But we look at ourselves and we don't feel loved. We don't feel called. We don't feel the connection. And so we walk apart and decide to be enslaved to other things. And so the question today truly is the question the Bible asks over, again, over and over again. Who is our dad? Who is our dad? And are we going to choose to listen to him because he loves and cares for us and because he's leading us away from a cliff, because he's keeping the three-year-old away from the alley? Is it because he loves us or do we fear him and somehow think all these other enslavements are okay? There are only two options in this life. Join me in prayer. God, when it comes to your word, almost every book describes these two roads. Almost every page of scripture is somehow connected to whether we're going to walk to with you towards life or whether we're going to walk away from you and choose death. And frankly, some of those choices aren't necessarily eternal. Maybe we've walked with you long enough to know that we really have had a vital relationship with you. Maybe we've walked with you long enough to see a difference for a short time, and we've been excited by that, and yet there's things we just don't want to give up. God, we pray that you would help us and give us the power to understand how that would look. We pray that this week would be a week when we would turn the reins over our, uh, in our lives over to you. We would be the people who listen to you and don't listen to everything else in our existence. We are addicted to thinking we're in charge. We're addicted to making choices. We're addicted to thinking that our opportunities define us. And yet, Lord, this single opportunity truly defines us. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us with an understanding and, and how that would work according to your spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.